Greetings and welcome to the Animal Wellness Podcast, the official podcast of Animal Wellness Action. Hi, I'm your host, Joseph Grove. On this show, we talk about animals from the perspective of people who care about them and have the ability to improve their lives by influencing culture and supporting laws and regulations accordingly. To stay up to date with all of our news and information, subscribe to this podcast, receive our absolutely free newsletters and more, please do visit animalwellnessaction.org. And I tell you, it's really a good time to check out our website, follow us on social media, subscribe to this podcast if you're not already a subscriber, because we have a tremendous year ahead of us. If you've been following our content, you'll know that 2022 ended great for animals. Uh, We had a a significant leadership role in passing the FDA Modernization Act. There was the Reduce Animal Testing Act. We uh, got Congress to outlaw the sale of shark fin products in the United States, which will reduce the, the horrific practice of fishermen bringing up sharks, cutting off their fins, and then throwing uh, the poor animals back into the water to be eaten alive or drowned. Uh, We fixed the Horse Racing Integrity Safety Act to help ensure it passes constitutional muster. And we also got record-breaking funding uh, to help other protections for horses. All of that because of your support. You take action when we send you emails and ask you to get in touch with your legislators. You contribute so that we can have the staff to do the work. Uh, Marty Irby, whom I'll introduce in a moment, has been frequently named one of the top lobbyists in DC. He's incredible. He's up on the Hill every day. I talked to him earlier today uh, and he already has 100 appointments set with legislators in the new Congress to help push forward our agenda for next year. Wayne Paselli, one of the greats in animal protection, head of our organization, two-time New York Times bestselling author. All of your support helps make sure this team does its job for animals. So I really do appreciate your being part of the team. Um, And speaking of Marty Irby, before we get into the meat of the show, I do want to turn it over to Marty for a legislative update. Marty, tell us about what's going on on the Hill. Well, it's never boring around this place. Thank you, Joseph. Of course, this is the beginning of the 118th Congress, uh, but we've got a great agenda set. We're going to have a lot of bills that we had in the last Congress reintroduced, like the Veterans for Mustangs Act, like the Minks or Super Spreaders Act, the Bear Poaching Elimination Act, uh, anti-horse slaughter legislation, and others. Uh, We're still riding high on the five wins that we got done just in the past two or three weeks that were signed into law, which are the Big Cat Public Safety Act, the Shark Fin Sales Elimination Act, a fix to the Horse Racing Integrity and Safety Act of 2020, and two animal testing bills, including the FDA Modernization Act, led by Senator Rand Paul, that eliminated a 1938 Depression-era mandate requiring animal testing for all new drugs. So that is no longer a federal mandate. It's the law of the land that you don't have to do it. Companies can still do that, but it should not only save millions of animal lives, but cut the drug cost and time to market moving forward. So we've got a huge agenda coming forward. We are really excited because typically in a divided Congress where we now have Republicans leading a House and Democrats leading a Senate, we get more done. That was the case in the last few Congresses before because people need to come together. It's a very, very tight margin. And our issue set resonates with them because it helps bring people together. So looking forward to a great 118th Congress and hope everybody will stick with us. 
Marty, thank you. I appreciate that. Good luck uh, with everything you have going on up there. Well, we've got two great guests today, and we're going to be talking about a fascinating topic. It, it really is one that interests me. And if you care about animals, I think you will find this very intriguing as well. Uh, one of our guests, one of my coworkers, Julie Marshall, our National Communications Director, is with us. She has more than 30 years of experience in print journalism and was the opinion editor for the Boulder Daily Camera newspaper uh, before joining us in May of last year. She also worked for a spell as a public information officer for Colorado's Division of Wildlife, and she is the author of Making Burroughs Fly, the Cleveland Amory Story uh, Animal Rescue Pioneer. So, Julie, we're glad you're with us. Anya Heister, PhD, joins us too. Uh, she is an independent researcher, writer, and lifelong animal rights activist, a co-founder of Footloose Montana, an organization working toward an end of trapping on public land in Montana. Anya is committed to social change for animals and publishes frequently on topics related to wild animal conservation, animal liberation, ethics, and policy. Uh, we'll be talking about Anya's new book today, Beyond the North American Model of Wildlife Conservation. Thank you both for, for being with us. I really do appreciate it. It's a good show to start the year. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, good, good. And yeah, Anya, thanks. thanks for having me. And uh, yeah. hi, Julie. Hi, Joseph. We were made aware of this topic because uh, Julie wrote a review of your book that was recently published in the Denver post. So in the show notes, I'll include a link to Julie's review. Uh, and then also a link. Review, by the way, if I just oh. could jump in. Yeah, thank you so much, Julie. That was great. Oh, thank I'm glad you enjoyed it. That yes, makes it a lot. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Julie has been super successful using her print media background and helping us tell our stories to a broader audience. So I think her review of your book, her introduction of you to my world, is a perfect example of how powerful stories can be powerfully told. So uh, again, prop, prompts to, to you both on that. So Anya, let, let's just start right off. I mentioned before we, we, we got into the show that, you know, our listeners are certainly above the 101 level, but, you know, a lot of us may not be as expert as you and Julie are in some of these issues. Tell us what a conservation model is first, and then we can get into what makes the North American version different and perhaps egregiously so compared to others. The North American model is a lethal approach to wildlife conservation, and it has as its cornerstone um, hunting and trapping. So that's why it is a lethal, it, it's considered a lethal approach to, to wildlife conservation. Um, as you can imagine, that model then has um, uh, very detrimental, horrific consequences for uh, wild animals. It's a, it's a set of, these, of this principle that describe the approach of uh, state and federal wildlife agencies, how they think uh, wild animals should be managed. And in that case, they think that wildlife need uh, wildlife wild animals need to be managed lethally through primarily through hunting and trapping. But when you look at uh, other government agencies, for example, the USDA uh, uh, Wildlife Services, they very often kill millions of animals uh, through the use of sharpshooters, of uh, of poison with the use of poison, and of course through uh, shooting and uh, trapping. 
Uh, Anya, let me let yeah, let me let me stop you there just for one second because I want to make sure I I stay with you, right? So I think my original question gets to a bit of what you're describing, right? So we call this conservation. So ostensibly, then whatever model or loosely defined paradigm might be at play has as its goal conservation. But as I've heard you begin to describe it, it almost seems like a, a, a model of elimination, right? I mean, what is the benefit to conservation of the hunting, the trapping, the poisoning that you described? I mean, I would argue that, it, that in reality, there is none, but what's the allegation of the benefit? Well, um, I, was going to, I was going to say next that this model has been uh, historically uh, created by, by sportsmen. Um, so the roots of those tenets, as Julie said in her, in her excellent review, um, go back 150 years. In, in 1897, Theodore Roosevelt, who everyone mm -hmm. knows as the president of the United States between 1901 and 1909, uh, led a movement of sport hunters where sport hunters, mostly wealthy and very influential men, mobilized against market hunters. The market hunters at that time, um, you and your listeners are probably familiar with the greatest massacre that occurred on the North American uh, continent. Um, in the 18th and 1900s, you know, where millions, tens of millions of animals were being slaughtered. Um, if you think about bison, six, 60 to 80 billion, uh, million, I'm sorry, uh, bison were reduced, killed for frivolous reasons and reduced down to 100, no, God, I, I think a thousand individuals. And um, in addition, trappers uh, killed uh, tens of millions of beavers. So that did not sit well with the wealthy sport hunters who wanted to kill and shoot uh, animals for their recreation. So sometimes they would uh, ride out or drive out to certain areas and would not find any animals to kill because the market hunters had gotten to them first. So the sports hunters under the leadership of Theodore Roosevelt um, mobilized against the market hunters and uh, basically through a, a series of, of, of actions, legal actions and uh, uh, policy developments and so forth and, and laws, of course, um, they replaced market hunting with sport hunting. And then uh, the next step was in 1897, Theodore Roosevelt uh, founded the Boone and Crockett Club, which is by, it, it's, a, it's a trophy hunting uh, uh, club that is by the way, uh, headquartered here in Missoula, Montana, where, where I live. It's right there. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then the Boone and Crockett Club uh, developed uh, uh, policies, put laws into place, and uh, created state wildlife agencies in order to for the agencies to manage these wild animals for them. So in essence, and just to, just to emphasize that point, Historic sportsmen, primarily hunters, created state wildlife agencies. And they all follow that model, that North American model, that, like I mentioned before, consists of seven elements. Would you like me to... to let, 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 let's hear them. What are, what are those, those seven elements? 
the, the first uh, element or principle uh, is wild, states wildlife resource resources are a public trust. So in essence, that says wildlife is a common resource that is held in trust by the government for the benefit of present and future human beings. The second uh, uh, principle is markets for game or wildlife are eliminated. That eliminated, sorry. That basically means that the hist historic markets for game species were eliminated. But interestingly, uh, trapping for fur and markets for animal pelts were exempted. So that's why we still have trapping and trapping for fur, right? The third element is allocation of wildlife is by law. And that basically states that so-called surplus wildlife is allocated to the public for consumption by law, not by the market, land ownership, or special privileges, such as wealth, for example, right? Very common in Europe, by the way. The fourth tenant says is titled, wildlife can be killed only for a legitimate purpose. This principle basically legit legitimizes killing for food, fur, self-defense, and property defense, but also for, for sport and recreation. Number five states that wildlife is considered an inter international resource. If you think about uh, uh, um, birds, for example, they fly across state borders, right? Um, so it's an inter and, and also into into other countries, of course. Um, so wildlife is an inter in, is a is an international resource. Number six states that science is the proper tool. Uh, excuse me, science is the proper tool to discharge wildlife policy. It's, it's a little it's a weird uh, title, but it basically says that the implementation of policies such as hunting and trapping policies or seasons, sorry hunting and trapping seasons or protection of endangered species should have a scientific base at, at, its, uh, at a certain level. The final tenet is called democracy of hunting. And uh, uh, democracy of hunting is standard. And that goes back to Aldo Leopold, who called this idea the democracy of sport and reflecting the model's inherent focus is the democratic process whereby basically everyone has the right to access wildlife and, ha and has the right to hunt. Everybody in, in um, yeah, every citizen has the right to hunt. All right, so uh, two reactions, one of which uh, I'm a huge Theodore Roosevelt fan and you know i always perk up when when he's talked about um what i was i forget whether the museum was in chicago or it may have been in new york can't remember but but in this museum were the um the remains of the first two panda ever seen by people from the united states and they both had been killed by roosevelt's sons and, and i just thought you know how absolutely you know, ironic that that would be the case. But as you as you delineate those seven principles, the casual listener might might say, "Well, okay, not not so bad, right?" I mean, you had uh, the market, if you will, killing you know the billions of bison and 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 all of this. Um, what what went wrong uh, mm -hmm. from there? So um, maybe most interesting to your listeners is um, 
the consequences, for example. I mean, for, oh, let, let me say let me say this. First of all, I think that uh, that because the model now reflects the governmental administered wildlife conservation system, the system has literally been hijacked by sportsmen, by hunters and trappers. And I'll get to that to a, in a minute. I think it's a really important po point. So what's wrong with the model? First of all, I'd say that look at the consequences of that lethal approach that the model reflects. Uh, look at the consequences, the detrimental impact onto wild animals. Um, it has been est estimated that every year between 100 and 200 million animals are being killed by hunters. Add to that an approximate let's say six to 20, between six and 21 million animals killed by trappers. And that's not all. Add to that uh, the USDA Wildlife Services, uh, the agency I just mentioned uh, previously, that kills millions of animals uh, every year under the disguise of livestock protection. So you end up with a grotesque number of animals, wild animals being killed every year. And, and for what? For fun, for recreation, for sport, for trophies, and for private profit. Hardly so, the hardly the legitimate purposes that one of the tenants describes. I mean, for fun and trophies would, would hardly seem to be a legitimate purpose. Yeah, you yeah, you would think so. You would think so. But uh you know, the model is often used uh, to protect hunting and trapping. And when questions or uh, critique is being brought up, like you just did, uh, Joseph, um, it's it's brushed aside, you know, mm -hmm. or it's being said that the model has developed and uh, now encompasses uh, other things and other methods and so forth and so forth. So what's wrong with this model, too, is what I call um, a very strong anthropocentric or what other Others, other writers and other conservationists even have called a human supremacy worldview. Anthropocentric means that value, that someone finds value in humans, but not in other living forms. Julie, what did you learn when reading this book that you didn't know oh before? Gosh. You've been a wildlife reporter and you've written yeah. books about wildlife. What did you learn yeah. when reviewing this book? I think um, so many things. I mean, this book was like every turn of the page was like an aha moment for me. I mean, you can see I've just like folded all the pages and I was going to gift it to someone, but now I can't. <laughs> but I, you know, it's your book is so many things. It's a richer, fuller history of our wildlife legacy. Um, and that, and I love historians, especially ones that say history is sacred and we're still trying to fill in the gaps um, for a more inclusive history that includes all of us. And I think what your book did is, is really provided a richer, fuller history for all of us who don't hunt and who don't fish and want to have a voice in wildlife policies today and feel left out. Um, I think... I learned so many things like um, there are women, women's stories who date back to the 19th century who are involved from the beginning in protecting wildlife who have been left out of the books or left out of being credited. Um, 
I remember you, I have it in front of me, Rosalie Borough Edge, um, 1877 to 1962, who established the first reserve for raptors called Hawk Mountain Sanctuary. And she helped Rachel Carson of Silent Spring discover the decline of juvenile raptors from DDT. Um, you know, we often in the hunt, hook and bullet community, there's rarely any talk of animal wellness and environmentalists who have contributed to um, to wildlife and our heritage today and protections um, like the help me remember um, the migratory treaty no, the endangered species act the endangered species act yes act, you know none of which were were spearheaded by by, by so-called sportsmen hunters and trappers that was the public the non-hunting the non-trapping the non-fishing public yes like um and i learned um i learned let's see i wanted to say i feel like you're you're brave because you um are opening up a window for a lot of us to learn more and to challenge established orthodoxies with knowledge um and i wanted to ask you if some of the feedback you've gotten has been um, I'm sure you've gotten a lot of positive feedback, but has there been some negative and even maybe scary feedback? Um, good question, that, Julie. That's a very good question, Julie. Thank <laughs> you. And I remember, you know, Joseph, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Footloose Montana. Uh, for some reason, um, a re uh, an article from 2012, I think it was, uh, just re recently resurfaced, and it talked about how um, how we had received a death threat after I had uh, published um, and shared online a photo of a trapper who had caught a wolf and then people shot at the wolf uh, in the trap. It was a horrific event. And so sure enough, you know, in the, in the following days, we got a death threat. So, um, so, so to answer your question, um, I have gotten tremendous uh, positive feedback, actually so overwhelmingly positive that I was really touched. And so I'm still waiting for the negative feedback and I'm sure it's gonna come. I'm sure it's going to come, especially once it's be, once my book is being read by so-called more traditional wildlife biologists and wildlife professionals. And certainly if any of the sportsmen I'm mentioning in my book, um, one of the leading promoters of the North American wildlife conservation model, if any any of those gentlemen, mostly gentlemen, will read my book, I'm assuming I will get some negative feedback. But so far, so good. Yeah, thank well, you. Well, if you're question. not making, yeah, if you're not making somebody angry, you're probably not doing it right. Right. right? <laughs> yeah, so, right. you know, I, um, yeah. uh, I, I was at a um, Christmas uh, event not long ago and happened to mention you know what i do and uh she boasted a bit about how her boyfriend is is a hunter and we we got into a discussion a little bit and she, she made a remark that i've had other people make to me before and that is well god gave us these animals to you know to use as we see fit it seems to me people exploit kind of the 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 western religion traditions that objectify animals and deem them as a gift to mankind to do with it what we will. Do you see that as one of the threads weaving this dark tapestry of our animal treatment? 
Yes, oh, absolutely. And it goes well beyond the North American model of wildlife conservation model, uh, conservation. Um, the sad part here is related to the model. Again, it is a, it is something that, that the government is involved, right? I mean, it's a, it's a paradigm of human dominance, of human superiority, of anthropocentrism or of human supremacy that is promoted by the government, by state and, wild, and federal wildlife-related uh, uh, government agencies. And that is catastrophic in my, in my view, you know, because agencies are often looked at as, uh, as authorities. And uh, a lot of people refer in their thinking and believing and their actions to either government agencies or religions right yes. and uh we're we're taught from a very early age on that don't worry about your piece of meat you know don't worry about that animal that's that that meat uh, that piece of meat came from it's just an animal it's just a pig it's just a cow you know mm -hmm. and so and the same uh belief system is inherent and actually drives that North American model of wildlife conservation, exactly the same worldview. And if I may, my last point, uh, one of my, one of my um, uh, personal um, uh, goals with this book was to make a connection for people between that anthropocentric worldview that drives the model of, of conservation um, through hunting and trapping, and then also making the connection to the same mindset that uh, drives all the crises that we're in these days, you know, climate change, uh, mm -hmm. uh, a, a human population that is certainly out of control, right? And, and uh, the global species, animal and plant uh, extinctions. Yeah. So, it, well, the, in, the, the in, well, the even the, yeah, well, right now, and even, you, you know, what we saw with, with, with Corona, right? And, and other, diseases uh, that emerge when we violate the inner sanctum of nature. And it may be catastrophizing a bit to say this, but I believe it's a matter of time before we, in our invasion of this natural world, unleash a pathogen that may spell great doom for, for, for a lot of humanity, uh, which is another argument against this kind of willy-nilly uh god gave the animals to us so let's do whatever the heck we want with them kind right. of mentality right. let me let, I, let me I, I, go I, ahead I yes i agree with you joseph and uh if i may also add along associated with that uh human supremacy or anthropocentric uh stance um comes a view that animals are not sentient Mm -hmm. Animals don't feel anything. Animals don't think anything. They just move like 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 machines. They move through the through the world like like machines. We don't have to worry about them. So, but that's exactly the problem that we think value is only in the human species and in nothing else. If people want to relate to the situation, watch watch your dog. Um, yeah. And watch your dog. If you have multiple dogs, let's say you have several dogs. Watch what happens to the surviving dogs if one of the other dogs dies out of uh, old age or whatever, for whatever reasons. Look at the grief that uh, the dogs who are remaining, um, how they express their emotions. Julie? Yeah, no, we're in, in. This is awesome. And I thank you both. I mean, I'm glad 
Joseph, excellent. And Anya, I'm glad you started talking about um, in the book, you explained so well this North American model and how at the time um, a bear was looked at as an ear of corn, like wildlife were a, were, was a crop to be harvested. That's where the term harvest came from. And I completely forgot that. And I was like, oh yeah, I just, yeah, I, people need to realize that was the language of this paradigm way back it still when. Is. It, it still is. <laughs> it goes back to Aldo Leopold who first equated uh, wild animals to a natural renewable resource and a crop to be harvested. Yes, mm -hmm. yes. And then and then if you fast forward 150 years and you say what's changed, um, I mean, uh, Mark Beckoff, you know, who's who's works with me in Colorado, who you know so well, um, has done so much work on ethology to show the sentience of animals. And I mean, we see it every day. I remember seeing a Smithsonian article like 20 years ago that talked about crows and had pictures of them walking up a slope, flipping on their back and sliding down just for fun. Like if that was so, you know, we animals have person, big, especially predators, I've learned even from the best lion biologists, mountain lions, um, they have really distinct individual personalities. Well, well you certainly are preaching to the choir. I doubt they're, you know, I mean, you're absolutely right. But it is how does one convince, you know, someone else of, of that sentience? We would certainly, you know, yeah. agree, you know, agree with that. But, but it is very difficult, particularly when you see the line of demarcation being whether one entity has been ensouled, if you will, and the mm -hmm. other has not been ensouled. Yeah. So uh, you're exactly. absolutely right. Anya, exactly. so this is another thing this, this woman with whom I had dinner, uh, or was at a dinner with, uh, said, and you can give me a good response here, because her thing was, you know, Joe, if we don't shoot the deer, they're going to run out in front of my car, and, and, and I might get killed. You don't want me to die instead of a deer, do you? Help me present a cogent answer to that kind of argument. They're going to run everywhere. We're, we're not going to be able to go into Walmart, you know, and, and buy our bananas because the deer are going to be chasing us out of the parking lot. Yeah. If we don't kill it, <laughs> yeah, we got to shoot those uh, deer. Yeah, that statement always gets my blood boiling as well. I mean, there are so many reasons why this view is just so, again, anthropocentric. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, when from a number point of view, I mean, uh, if any species is overabundant, um, you know, um, it's humans. I mean, we're literally everywhere. Our our cities are expanding uh, daily. You know, we are encroaching in the habitats and homes of other animals. Our roads go everywhere. They penetrate, uh, you know, the last uh, places. Of, uh, of diversity, of, of, of diverse uh, animal species and plant species. So, but it also, it brings up a, a, a point that I'm making in my book as well. Um, one of the solutions I think of how, how we need to change in our, in our way of showing up in the world as human species is, is first of all, we need to develop more empathy and compassion for others. We have to get away from this anthropocentric, only human-centered uh, way of, of living and of policy development and of management of conservation and of, of eating. <laughs> mm -hmm. and, uh, and secondly, um, that, that, goes, uh, that argument goes towards a policy development. What if we 
developed uh, policies, like where to build roads, for example, where to slow down, where to build uh, wildlife corridors over, high, uh, uh, over highways or underpasses with other species in mind. You know, you know, Anya, I, I got to stop you there, right? Because when, when you say all that, I think, yeah, and I should lose 40 pounds too. Neither is going to happen, right? How do we spread, convince, proselytize that empathy, right? I and mean, we don't even, we can't even come up with pay increases for teachers. How are we going to convince the American taxpayer to, to build the kind of overpasses we're seeing increasingly in other parts of the world that enable wildlife to cross unmolested. I mean, I mean, yes, that should happen, but how in the world do we make it happen? Your book is helping. I mean, I think just, you know, getting it out there and sharing it with friends and family, um, it really is, it, it, it will embolden people to realize there's people like you out there who have spent so much time and energy to put this full history together. And the fact that you're bravely opening the door for us to question 150 years of wildlife management and what it means today when everything has changed, like you mentioned, climate, biodiversity, really none of those issues are being addressed within game species. I mean, our agencies aren't even looking at the whole web of life and managing on a, like an ecosystem level. It's just the animals they want to hunt. And I think when people like me and and other people out there read that, they just feel more aware and emboldened to, to get involved. Um, and I think it might be a, just a matter of, because it's like you said, it's so, what, what's the word you use, Joseph? Um, Insold, entrenched in our highest well, levels. Mm -hmm, I mm -hmm. think um, maybe change there. We need, um, we need change uh, people who are in, in running our wildlife agencies, change in politicians who support the NAM, um, more women, more women of color. Um, <laughs> we need more um, wildlife watchers to get the bigger picture. And I'm not saying anti-hunters at all, you know, it, it's not, it's not so black and white, you know, I'm not anti-hunting, but I am, I'm for, I guess if I want to use the NAM language, I'm for the best science, but guess what? Our, independent academic scientists or ethologists, they're all left out. It's yeah, like and, and I should say this, science. and I should say this, Julie, because because it's important since this is uh, the podcast of Animal Wellness Action, you know, it's important to say that we are not organizationally uh, oh, against sorry. hunting, <laughs> right? No, you said that, right? So you made your the point that you're not against against hunting. And I just want to tell our listeners that it's not our perspective to be right, anti-hunting right. either, right? Uh, but there is discriminate hunting. There is judicious hunting, uh, you know, perhaps at best. So, uh, you, so you, sorry you, to you, interrupt that. Yeah. Julia, you're, you're absolutely right. And I, I couldn't agree more with you. I mean, I'm, I'm obviously completely against hunting and against trapping. You know, like Mark Bickoff always says, um, uh, killing is lazy. So, so a change disrupting the current paradigm, you know, is it, going to, it's going to take a lot. It's going to take a, a lot of voices. It's going to take a lot of uh, members of the public who don't agree with uh, killing animals or with uh, other social justice uh, movement issues, yeah, and, and that, that's, actually, that's actually another issue. Animal rights, in my view, animal liberation has to become or should become part of the social justice movement. They mm -hmm. cannot no longer be left out, you know, and, and going back to going, 
another point that I'm making oftentimes with friends who are who not necessarily share my my worldview, um, I, I I point out that look at this. We we so often in public. Um, on TV, on the news, and wherever we talk about STEM and how and the importance of, of STEM, of science, of technology, of engineering, of math. And while I'm not disagreeing with this, it's all important. We yeah. hardly ever talk about how we should show up as human beings. We don't discuss um, a set of ethical let's say guidelines or rules, the golden rule, for example, you know, how we as human beings should behave and show up and interact with other, with other animals. We never talk about that. So that, that needs to come to the surface and how it comes to the surface is by people speaking up yes. and, uh, and voicing their opposition, disrupting the current paradigm of, of human supremacy and put us on, the, on a different path of more inclusivity, inclusivity, you know, where every individual matters, not only a human being matters, but every other animal matters as well. The peaceful coexistence, why we're not talking, why, why doesn't CNN or Fox News, why, why are we not talking about coexistence yeah. um, on, on the news, on TV? You know? Well, you, well, so you, you know the why, right? Is because nobody will listen to it. You know, n nobody wants to hear it yet. And, but and I'm thinking, want their children to survive and thrive. And mm -hmm. I'm talking about humans. So yeah. anyone who has children should should pause and reflect on on the current situation. What's going on? Look look at climate change. Look at species. Uh, 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 species extinction, look at the, the out of control human population growth mm -hmm. and look at what, mm -hmm. what we're doing to this planet and then think about, well, do I really want my children to live in, in a world that is so devastated, that is so, so poor, so, you yeah. know, and, and the answer I, I would imagine is no, I, I want better for my children. So if you don't want to do it for the beaver and for the bobcats out there and for the coyotes and the wolves, do it for your children. Yes. Yeah, we we need to have more content, you know, like like Blackfish and what that did for people's understanding of the plight of, of killer whales, orca in in captivity. And even, you know, th this may sound silly, but look at the impact. I think the the death of Bambi's mother had in that film and getting children to really see it. If there were a way to get children before they ossify in this Western mindset to understand and embrace and, and inculcate within themselves the empathy that Julie was talking about a minute ago, a lot of these problems would be self-solving because the mindset would lead to the solutions that are necessary. We're going a little bit long, uh, Anya, so I want to move quickly to ask you what what what's the the alternative you touched on that a, a little bit the the proselytizing of a, of a more benevolent approach uh, to the world and to its inhabitants uh, what else do you see as the preferable model thank you joseph for this question so throughout my book i've argued that we must change the paradigm from exploitation and killing to protection and peaceful coexistence yeah so that means that in essence we must uh, change our our mindset and most importantly to me anyway we have to increase our empathy and compassion for other animals, and that includes wild and domestic animals. 
uh, an action that follows from such a change in being, for example, would be switching to a plant-based diet. I think that would have huge consequences, positive consequences for the planet, for other species, and for us as well. Um, related to conservation, um, I point out in my last chapter in my book that there is a very exciting new, it's not so new anymore, but a growing international movement called Com Compassionate Conservation. It was started by um, many individuals, uh, including Mark Bekoff um, or, uh, and, um, and uh, many others. Um, it's, there is a Center for Compassionate Conservation in Sydney, uh, Australia. So that's the main hotspot from where this movement is hopefully radiating and growing across the planet. And um, yeah, uh, like, like, like I've mentioned, many individuals are involved in this. Uh, Will Travers of Born Free uh, Foundation, um, Professor Adrian Travers, Project Coyote, the organization in, in, in California, Animal Wellness Action, Footloose Montana, Predator Defense, um, and so forth and so forth. Daniel Ramp, um, a conservationist, compassionate conservationist in Australia. And it basically, compassionate conservation basically challenges our belief in human supremacy. Uh, compassionate conservation is a movement that has four tenets. The first is first do no harm. So that derives from the medical uh, uh, Hippocratic oath from medicine, you know, first don't do harm. Um, and includes the it includes the option of, of doing nothing, for example, in certain conservation dilemmas. If the outcome or if the interventions would cause more harm than good. The second tenet is that individuals matter. And that goes to the point of intrinsic value of individuals. So the value of individual animals, regardless of what we, what kind of value we as humans assigns, assign to them. So intrinsic value of individuals and their species, and also regardless of, of how we label them, either as overabundant, <laughs> like the deer you mentioned, Joseph, or uh, native or invasive or whatever. So every individual matters. And the fourth tenet uh, of compassionate conservation is peaceful coexistence. So the idea that we should first reflect on our own emotions and thoughts and practices um, instead of immediate, immediately engaging in practices of, let's say, aggression and so these tenets are a guide for our interactions with individual animals and uh, wild animals. But I would say that this could also be become a guide for our interactions and treatments of uh, of domestic animals. Yeah. And and one another, because if we can begin to see all creatures around us as, as having individual value, that may actually go back up the food chain, if you will, and help us have more compassion even for our, our fellow our fellow people. So, yes. um, all right, uh, Julie, I'm going to give you the last word in a moment, but I want to thank uh, Anya uh, Heister uh, for being with us. The book is Beyond the North American Model mm -hmm. of Wildlife Conversation. Uh, con Dag on it, couldn't you have cho you chosen a different word, Anya? I know I've made I, a mistake many times before too. So now it's your turn. <laughs> yes, beyond the North American model of wildlife conservation, uh, from lethal uh, to compassionate conservation, and, and you use the word twice in one title, <laughs> Anya. 
I know. I just hard. couldn't come up with something better, to be yeah, honest. Well, well, <laughs> all right. well, very good. Well, no, it, it's it's a beautiful book. We'll have the link uh, in the um, the show notes. Uh, Julie, I owe you three minutes before I have to send you the pineapple pizza. What are your final <laughs> What are your final thoughts and a final question for uh, oh my gosh. Uh, for oh my Anya? Gosh. You're on you're on the hot seat. Okay, I would in terms terms of animal sentience, I would love to hear one of your favorite stories. You know, like mine was the crow just like that shows that shows the personality the playfulness in crows. I would love to hear your one of your favorite stories or or, or what something you learned that was really interesting about um, that we didn't know how animals, their personalities or how they think. I guess I was just writing down, you know, I'm constantly told within the agencies, you know, don't use the word values. You know, I was talking with a friend like, yeah, like values is the enemy of the North American model. Like they feel like they are it. We they are the science, and and if you bring in values, that will that is just not okay. But if you look at the model, it all of it is values. It's all right. based on right. their values at the time. So that's just kind of a crock of you know what, and um, so that's very frustrating to me. Um, but what I just want to thank you for your beautiful book. I think. To me, it um, it opens a door and a window. And I think what it tells me is that we've evolved from 150 years ago. I'm gonna go home, I am home. I'm gonna go on Google and look at what other models we had 150 years ago that have evolved. Um, and if they hadn't evolved where we'd be. Um, and I think critical thinking, what you're saying is really the enemy of the North American model. And I think your book is really allowing people more knowledge to be critical thinkers and to be brave and to get involved in wildlife in their communities and to really find out what's going on and and promote this what's the word it's mutualism versus dominion what's the word joseph dominionism Domin yes there you go yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah mutualism I like that versus dominionism yeah i like that and i've said this in other shows before that that dominion is probably the most weaponized and abused word we have when it comes to this topic and many others. Anya, have you had time to think of a favorite story or, or an anecdote that demonstrated to you uh, anew the, the worthiness, the sentience of our animal companions? One story that, um, and now I forget uh, the name of the conservationist, but he lives in, Mon in Montana and he has written a book about wolverines. Um, and he told me um, once, in person actually, he told me the story of, uh, of him um, being in the mountains somewhere in Montana, might have been Glacier, Glacier National Park, and he saw uh, tracks of wolverines, one bigger tracks and one a set of smaller tracks side by side going up the mountain and, uh, you know, and so he later figured out that that was, those were tracks of a Wolverine father who had visited the den of his young. And then one of them, one of the young had decided to walk a little bit with her or his father. So, so they were hanging out together. And I thought it was such a great, great story. You know, it always stuck with me. Yeah, I think they, I think they sat by me at the movies that day. I think, you know, <laughs> he was, he was a divorced Wolverine dad. He'd come right. by to pick up the kid and they went to Chuck E. Cheese and then, and then the movies. 
exactly you know, exactly a, a flippant yeah. response to 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 a beautiful story so so Can thank I you say for that one last thing really julie quick. <laughs> you wouldn't be julie if you didn't <laughs> so so anya joseph joseph and i so i have i'm the optimist and i have faith in people to have um, learn empathy maybe they're born with it maybe they can learn it. i'm feel i'm fearing joseph fears were due <laughs> so i want we're doomed so talking... it's never going to get better we're going to hell julie That's, so just... yeah, and she's the optimist Sadly, i have to agree with joseph probably more than um, you know. i mean but this is not to say that individuals are think i think are waking up and we're we're, we're becoming more of an uh, more of an empathetic and compassionate species but the pace at which that is happening is very slow mm. I don't think we have yet uh, reached the tipping point, you know, beyond which things are going to get better. I mean, I'm still hoping. I'm still hoping that we do. Hopefully, our our great 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 grandchildren, Julie, will be able to listen to this podcast in some chip inside their head, uh, and they'll be able to say that you were right and and I was wrong. So, so so thank you again. I always like to thank our listeners for tuning into the Animal Wellness Podcast. Uh, the website, we encourage you to visit it, animalwellnessaction.org. You can subscribe, you can donate. We have detailed uh, information on a lot of our campaigns for a small team, and we are a small team. We are up to a lot of good. Uh, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter, and we invite you to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or Spotify. I've been your host, Joseph Grove, and we'll be back soon with another episode of the Animal Wellness Podcast. <laughs> <laughs>